Everyone, we, uh, as we get ready to, to continue our series uh, called Letters through uh, the seven uh, letters of the churches, um, you know, I want to just ask and start off with a question. How many of you have ever tried to follow a recipe, an emphasis on the word tried, because it didn't come out the way that you wanted it to? Have you guys ever had this experience before? So, um, good, I'm not the only one. Great, because this sermon would be a lot sadder if I were. Um, so I had uh, a couple years ago, or several years ago, actually, Steph and I had just gotten married, and uh, she needed to bring brownies to work. And in order to, um, trying to be a, a helpful husband, again, emphasis on try, um, trying to be a helpful husband, she went to, went to try to go to bed, and I was like, I'll make the brownies. It's going to be fine. And this was not like brownies from scratch brownies. This was like, you know, Pillsbury box. There's only three ingredients and only f- one way to mess up, and guess who found it? And so um, it's one of those when... They end up putting things together, and, and I put it into the oven. And after a few moments, I, you know, I turned the light on in the oven to take a look at my proud handiwork. And uh, the best way I could describe it is that it looked like, like, long, like soap bubbles had like bubbled to the top. And it's just all these like white bubbles all over the, the very top of it. And you know, she ended up, I think, had to get up to wash her hands or something. I don't remember what happened. But I was like, honey, can you just, can you just take a look at these? She's like, I'm sure it's fine. And, um, you know, because she has more faith in me than I have in myself. And so I'm sure it's fine. But then we go and we look at it and sure enough, she's like, well, did you, you know, did you follow the recipe? I was like, yeah. She's like, did you put in everything? Like, did you put in the, the water? I'm like, yeah, the mix. Yeah. And the only other ingredient was the egg. She's like, did you put in the egg? I was like, nope. Forgot that part. And it was just completely messed up. We literally took it out and there was nothing, we, there, there was no salvaging it. It was just, we kind of used a knife to kind of cut around the outside and we just had to like, toss it into the trash, and, like, when it went into the trash, it just had, like, a solid, like, thunk, because it was just this thick, not greatness. Um, and I share the story because uh, how many of you, have you ever heard of this phrase, garbage in, garbage out? Garbage in, garbage out. And I'd heard it before, but I, but I wanted to get some clarity on it, make sure I understood it. And the idea with garbage in, garbage out is the idea that if you want something to have a good result at the end, you need to make sure that what you were putting into it from the very beginning and the process is good from the beginning so that the results would be good. But if you start with a false premise or if you try to do something and, and at the very beginning it's garbage or at least it's not the right thing to do or it's the right way to go about it, then it doesn't matter how good the process is because in the end it's still going to end up being garbage out. So garbage in, garbage out. The oven for my brownie illustration, it wasn't that a malfunction of the oven. The process was right. It was a malfunction of user error of forgetting the recipe or not including all of the ingredients. And so when I put it in, unbeknownst to me, it was already going to be garbage because I forgot the egg. The process itself was fine. And then the result was less than fine. And I think Steph had to like buy something the next morning um, uh, in order to cover up for my mistakes. But just this, this fact that Garbage in, garbage out. So let's, let's take it back away from cooking for a moment. Perhaps you are a student and you want to get good grades. So your end result, instead of giving garbage out, you want to have good grades, you want to do well, you want to you know, be able to get good, certain grades, you get to a certain college, you can pursue a career, all, all those different things. So let's say at the beginning of the school year, you say, okay, I'm going to show up to all my Zoom calls, or I'm going to watch all the lectures, I'm going to do all the homework, uh, I'm going to take all the tests. You may have a good plan, and the process may be accurate, but if you bought the wrong textbooks, or you had the wrong book in the first place, the process could be great, but you're still going to fail, right? It's 
if the wrong thing in the beginning, from the onset, the starting point is wrong, even if the process is good, the end point will be different than what we desire. Maybe for some of you, you are someone who's single and you are looking to have a God-honoring marriage and, and you long for that. And maybe if it hasn't happened and you're, you're wondering, you know, maybe I'd lower my standards. Maybe I don't pursue um, someone who loves the Lord as much. And so if you find someone who's not just unsure about God, because that can have its own problems, but if you find someone who is an, like antithetical or completely against the idea of God, your desire, your goal for a God-honoring marriage is going to have a difficulty on the onset, at the starting point. And to be clear, that's not a necessarily a garbage in, garbage out fully because we know that God can and does redeem marriages and changes lives, right? Like there's more hope for a marriage as we're continuing to pray and seek God than there is for my brownies, right? That's, that's all done. So the idea is there are different things. Maybe you're planning for retirement and you had an idea of how much money you thought that you would need. And so you would save aside a little bit here, or you know, maybe you're, you're just using your house uh, to be able to be the, your retirement and sell it at some point. But if you misjudged how much you needed, even if you had a good process of saving, if you're saving too little for, for, for however long, or you started saving too late, then all of a sudden the premise might be, okay, I, I wanted to have this good intention, but the starting point wasn't ideal. So now I'm in a, a situation where I'm trying to navigate how to make things work, how to make ends meet. So for all of us, we can think of different examples of the desire at the very beginning. If I want to lose weight and I just keep eating the same things I've always eaten and never put the work into it, that's not going to work. So we can all think of different examples. So garbage in, garbage out is the title of our sermon because we're going to take a few moments to look at Revelation 2, chapter 12 through or, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, to look at the, the church at Pergamum. And the main point that we're going to talk about this morning is that the same vein of garbage in, garbage out, that what you let in determines what you live out. What you let in to your life, the voices that you give credence to, the, the time you spend, the people you surround yourself with, what you let in determines what you live out. It could be good or bad, but show me, as Craig Rochelle says, show me your friends and I'll show you who you're likely to become like. So who are the people? What does it look like? Who are the voices that we turn to? What you let in determines what you live out. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for each person that is here, each person that is here with us online. And God, I pray that as we dive into your word, Lord, that you would speak, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. God, I pray that everyone who hears my voice, if they learn nothing else today, may they know that they are deeply loved by you. And if we just had a service where they walked away feeling your love or feeling um, just an extra portion of your presence and your care for them, Lord, then and that is something to be praised and something we're excited for. So God, we pray again that as we are into your word, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, challenge us where we need to be challenged, reveal to us what you need to reveal so that we could become who you want us to become. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you want to turn to Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, we've been going through, this is the third church that we've been going through in our letter series. And this church is the church of Pergamum. And so Pergamum, 
was another large city, had another, uh, it was a large place where there were um, different uh, imperial cults. So again, we mentioned this last week, looking at the um, section of Smyrna, that it was a place where people were worshiping Caesar. Um, it's a place where they had real issues, real problems. And as we're looking at Revelation, specifically chapter two and three, we're looking at the churches as real local churches, historical churches that Jesus had a vision, or excuse me, spoke to John, his, one of his best friends on earth, spoke to John, gave a vision, and said, here are the messages I have for the different churches. And because they are local historical churches, those messages impact us. Those Im messages can speak to us. And so we're going to dive into the idea that what you let in determines what you live out based on these passages. I'm going to read the entire uh, six verses here, and then we're going to unpack a few points together. Um, and so if you're following along, Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. As we unpack a few things, the first part of your notes that we're going to talk about, that what we let in determines how, what we live out, is this idea that Satan is real, and he's nearer than we think. Satan is real, and he's nearer than we think. We see this in verse 13, where two different times Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know your city, where Satan dwells. And he says that right after, Jesus says that right after he introduces himself as the one who has a double-edged sword. And the sword was, was something that um, embodied like the military might of Rome, but also it's a double-edged sword. And so often if you're in scripture and you, you see something or a symbol or um, a word picture that you're not quite sure what it means or what the connection is, it, it can help to kind of try to look back and see where is that referred to in other places of scripture. So as an example, the double-edged sword is reminiscent and takes us back to Hebrews 4, verse 12. The idea that the author of Hebrews says that the word is like a double-edged sword that can divide between bone and marrow. They're talking about the word of God. So Jesus is saying, here's my teaching, the word of God, and I'm the one who's able to share this, and I share this with you, and I hold this strong word, I hold this strong teaching in comparison to the teaching that you're holding on to that is, that is false, that is going to lead you astray. And we'll, we'll dive into that in a few moments. So he introduces himself this way, and then he says, and yet I know that you are living in a city where Satan has his throne, where Satan dwells. 
As I mentioned, there's temples to Caesar in, in Pergamum. There are temples to Zeus in Pergamum. There is temple to um, Asculapius, who is uh, the god and the Roman god of healing that was symbolized by a staff with a snake wrapped around it. And so some scholars are kind of making that connection. He's talking about how Satan, who is a serpent uh, in Genesis 3, how there's a connection of like, yes, that serpent, there's a, there's a God who is represented by a serpent in your city, that literally there is a place where people are worshiping a God who is symbolized by Satan. Now, to be really clear, that idea of the staff with the with the um, snake around it if you've seen like medical transports i mean the hospitals medical you'll see that right you see kind of a snake uh, wrapped around a staff and some people will say oh it's connected to a scrupulous like this this god in rome but if you go even further back into the wilderness wanderings of the old testament god's people in israel that there was a plague and moses had a huge staff a huge stick with a snake wrapped around it and whoever would look upon that would be healed so it goes even further back than rome and greece we bring it up because there were so many different idols so many different specific ones that can be connected to satan because of the serpent they say you are living in a place where satan dwells and there are two different things when we think of satan we we, we think of a couple different things right one thing we might think of is um you know, like a, like a goat legs with like the horns, right? Like that might be one picture that we have. We also might think of like the uh, like the Satan on your shoulder, the devil on your shoulder, and the angel on your other shoulder, and you feel like like both. You just kind of kind of listening to both uh, different things, um, different voices that tell you what to do that are bad, or tell you what to do that's good. Some of us fall. We fall into two different categories. One is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to Satan, when it comes to the fact that here's the thing: we do have an enemy. We have an enemy. He's real. The impact can be devastating. And some of us will take that truth that we have an enemy and we'll, we'll focus on superstition, this idea that we put kind of an overemphasis or, or everything is a direct attack spiritually. And so we kind of go one side of the pendulum where if you've ever had, um, you know, done laundry and like your sock goes missing, you're like, well, that's the devil trying to get me. Right, like we just kind of see that there's something in everything is, is a spiritual attack. So there's, there's a superstition, but then what many people, many of us, I imagine, go to is the opposite of that pendulum, not superstition, because super is like superscript, like is above, but it's this idea of subscript or this idea of substition, where we downplay the impact of spiritual warfare. We think, how can there be a spiritual warfare? We don't see it, we don't, we don't recognize it, we don't think that it's real. Guys, there, there is an enemy. And we think that th th Jesus is telling us that Satan is real. There is an enemy of our souls, one who wants to divide and to discourage and to follow deception and who wants to make it that we are divided. This is something that the enemy knows he's already lost the battle, but he wants to take as many casualties down with him. So we, we ought to be on guard to put on the full armor of God every single day to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the peace, peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and then what's the last one that represents the word of God? The sword of the spirit. Connecting the word of God to a sword, as Jesus does in verse 12, and as we'll see he does later on in this passage as well. So, Satan is real. He's nearer than we think. We need to recognize 
the influence of division, deception, discouragement all around us because he wants to divide and conquer. But in addition to that, we see that it's not just that Satan is real. It's this idea here that the road to compromise, that this church was a church that was in danger of compromising their walk. The road to compromise starts with false teaching. Garbage in, false teaching. If we try to study a false teaching in the same way we want to study true teaching, the process might be study. The process might be listening. The process might be trying to obey what we're being taught. But if the premise at the beginning is a false teaching, garbage in will cause us to have a garbage out at the end of compromise, of falling away from the Lord, of having difficulties in our lives because we're trying to do one thing or saying we're trying to do one thing, but we're starting at the wrong starting point. So verse 14 is where we unpack this a little bit. When Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. That if you want to have a, if you have your pen with you, or if you want to follow up on this, go to Numbers 25 uh, later on, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 2 around there. And Balaam, to give a concept, the context, is he was a, a true prophet of God. But he was a true prophet of God that was hired by Balak, a, a king of the Midianites, in order to, the, the king said, hey, I want you to curse the Israelites. And so Balaam accepts the money and he goes and he, whenever there's a chance to curse the Israelites, he says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so he ends up blessing the Israelites. And every time Balak is getting mad at him saying, why are you doing this? He's like, well, I can only say what, what God's saying, so I can't curse them. If that's not what God is saying, however, here's what I can do because he's compromised. He, he's putting the money that he received as a hired prophet above the fact that he serves a God who is higher power, the one true God. And so he says, here's what you can do to divide the people. Have them go into having some feasts with other Midianites, with your people. Have them start to intermingle have them start to worship other gods through something as seemingly innocuous as having a meal together. But that meal that is sacrificed to idols then opens the door. It's a small step of compromise. This false teaching that you can live both in fully in the world and both fully of God, it's like oil and water. We, we cannot be fully in both. And so slowly what happens is bad company corrupts good character. We slowly start to go down a road of compromise, but it starts with false teaching. So the Midianites were able to cause the Israelites to lead, go astray because Balaam had taught that the best way to do this isn't necessarily an all full out frontal attack on their faith, but the small steps of compromise that we don't even know we're taking. This leads us to this idea that the false teaching, if we're not so well-versed in the sword of the spirit, the word of God, if we're not so well-versed in what God says in his word, we might hear things that sound like they could come from God, but they're not. You know, we hear something, we think, oh, that must be in the Bible. In fact, as I was searching garbage in, garbage out, and I was, I was like, garbage in, garbage out, meaning one of the, the top like Google search results said, where does it say garbage in, garbage out in the Bible? I'm like, it doesn't say that, right? But we hear advice and we assume it's in the scripture itself. So the only way for us to know counterfeit false teaching is for us to be so well-versed in the truth 
that we can sniff it out, we can feel it, that it's not real. That bankers are able to determine counterfeit money that looks the same, it, everything seems the same, but the way they're able to tell counterfeit money is because they've touched hundreds of bills for hours upon hours, days upon days, weeks upon weeks, months upon months, years upon years. And all of a sudden when they hit a counterfeit, they've had so much time feeling the authentic note that they can automatically tell something is different about the counterfeit. Are we so familiar with God's word that we can automatically smell out or feel out a counterfeit? Counterfeit false teaching that could lead us astray. We see this here that C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, that talks a lot about spiritual warfare. It's the context of the book or the concept of the book is that there's Screwtape is, a, is a, a senior demon who's trying to teach a junior demon, his nephew, Wormwood, how to stumble or cause a Christian to stumble. But in, in that, in this like kind of writings back and forth, he says this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. What does that mean? It means that it's not always an all-out full frontal attack on our faith that causes us to stumble. It's the, the smooth road, the, the soft journey that all of a sudden you're, you're going on a, on a hike and you're like, oh, wow, I did, the time passed so quickly. I didn't even realize that we've already hiked a mile. It's just been so beautiful and so great. It, it seems so nice. It's these small steps over time that everything seems fine. There's small compromises that end up causing us to look down the road and realize how far from where we wanted to be, we're now become. We continue on with the same idea that small compromises lead to big messes. Small compromises lead to big messes. In uh, verse 15, Jesus also calls out the Nicolaitans. He says, likewise, in the same way that some of you hold on to Balaam's teaching, there's also the Nicolaitans. Balaam's teaching is a little bit of a, hey, there's a, there's a compromise here. You can, you can go ahead and, you know, go ahead and eat meal sacrifice to idols. Go, go ahead and partake in different parts of immorality. Go, go, it's it's going to be okay. You can still do both. And so people in the church are thinking, oh, I can do both and. That'll be great. The Nicolaitans were ones that we only see them here and in verse 6. And so we're, we, we try to t- learn from the context. But Clement of Alexandria, who wrote many, many, many years ago, wrote, that the Nicolaitans are people who abandon themselves in pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. That they abandoned all things. And then they just said, I just want to indulge myself in everything at all times, the way I want it, how I want it, where I want it, when I want it. If you were to describe some of the temptations we have here in our culture, it's that we want what we want, how we want it, when we want it, where we want it. Because everything's on demand, everything's at our fingertips. It's easy to indulge. It's easy to make small compromises. That they didn't just say, hey, go ahead and commingle. They said, hey, we are just going to completely reject. We're going to go so far from following God that we're going to just make small compromises and then look back again and say, wow, we're so far from where we're meant to be. Uh, Our family, every every night we do a devotional um, 
for the kids that's called, one of them was called Indescribable by Louis Giglio, and this most recent one's called How Great Is Our God by Louis Giglio, and it's, it teaches a lot about creation and nature and God's majesty and, you know, huge things about the universe to, like, small things about little water bears who are, like, the tiniest little creatures that can survive anything. Like, it's, it's just fascinating. And earlier this week, we read one uh, that was talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Have you heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch at all? Okay, so the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, other than just being very easy to say, <clears throat> um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is a place that, if you if you can see here, um, it might be a little hard, but you can see it's just it's a bunch of trash that. When trash gets left into the ocean, when we, when we go to the beach and the plastic bag flies off into the water, when, when we dump it, if you look at um, oftentimes on streets, it'll say like, no dumping, this goes straight to the ocean, right? What ends up happening is that based on the current of the ocean, there are certain places that the trash that might be coming from the mainland in America or might be coming from Hawaii, it starts to then just because of the current, it gets settled into certain locations. We see here the next one. Um, we have you know one here that we're the coast of California right here, and there's one that's not too far from us, and then there's another one on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, closer to Japan. Again, all based on the current, the trash can compile and to swirl and to become these garbage patches. Now, to be clear, it's not like a garbage island. Like there are some places, it's like trash island. You can walk on the trash. I don't know why you would, but you, that's not true. It's not like a solid mass. However, it's something that you, it's very obvious and it's very clear to see. And, and you'll see pictures, if you want to search later, of, of animals who've been stuck and caught into that and, and people trying to rescue them. But I want to show you this next picture because this next picture shows how it's not only big things. In fact, if you could see, this is a hand and it's holding a bunch of little, little things, little pieces of detritus, little pieces of trash that have just, when it all compiles, these small pieces of trash create a big mess. It's sometimes our small decisions our small little white lies, the things we do when we think no one's looking, the things we think won't hurt anybody else other than us, so therefore it's not a big deal. Those corners that we cut it's at work, the times we cheat on tests at school, it's the times that we do things small that we think don't matter. But a bunch of things that are small that we think don't matter end up mattering a whole lot. Jesus is so harsh here because he's like, you are holding on to false teaching, not the sword of the spirit, not the true word of God, not true teaching, but false teaching. And if you do this, you will lose your opportunity to witness to people who don't know Jesus, who don't know me as Jesus is speaking. He's saying, so here's what we're going to happen. He's like, he wants us to ask, who are the people that we are listening to most? Where are we finding truth? Are we looking at the world around us or are we looking at the word in front of us? Are we listening to the advice of others or are we listening in silence and in prayer and solitude to God? Are we so familiar with God and his word and his character that we can feel out a counterfeit when it comes? Or are we made so many small compromises that now we've lost the sound of our father's voice? That we've, the, good sh the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Have we taken so many small compromises but now we don't even hear his voice and we don't even recognize it anymore. What you let in determines what you live out. The small compromises we let in determines what comes out and how we live that out. Brendan Manning says this. He says that the single greatest cause of atheism today 
is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then go out and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Are we acknowledging Jesus with our lips? But because of false teaching, the garbage has been in and now we're seeing the garbage coming out. Because of small compromises, all of a sudden we're miles away from where we were when we wanted to pursue God in the first place. That if you were to be able to go back in time and tell yourself 10 years ago, five years ago, what your walk with God would be like, would you be excited to tell them or would you be ashamed to mention it? What you let in determines what you live out. So we've taken several moments to be able to look at some of the things that is garbage in, garbage out. But what does this passage say? What are some things we can do to not have garbage in, garbage out, but godly in, and godly out. What does it look like for us to recognize that the process is the same? It's the starting point. It's our beginning stance that needs to change in order for us to fix our eyes, not on the wind and the waves around us, but to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. What does it look like for us to be so consistent that what we do day in and day out are not small compromises that bring us big messes, but are small steps towards our big God? We see here, One of the first things is he refers to the sword of his mouth. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice the the, the, um, person he's talking to. First he says, you repent or else I will come and because I'm going to come and and attack them. I'm going to go take those who follow. Who's the them? Who's the ant? What's the antecedent to them? It's the idea of the people who are holding to Nicolaitan teaching, holding to the, the, the error or the teaching of Balaam. It's saying, I'm going to bring the truth of my word and the true teaching and the power in that, and I'm going to take them out. I'm going to show them the truth. I will fight against them. So what's one thing that we do is that we need to know God's word, read God's word. Know it. Know what the sword of the spirit says. Know how to use it. Again, the sword of the spirit is the only offensive, not offensive as in, well, it can be, people can find it offensive because God calls us to truth, but it's the only offensive part of the armor of God. Ephesians 6, everything else is defensive. It's the only thing that we can use to fight the battle. So we better know our sword and know the feel of it, know how to wield it, and know how to fight against false teaching. So read God's word. Andy Stanley, in a book I was recently reading called Visioneering, he's talking, he's telling a story about when he was teaching his five-year-old son to read. Rather, his five-year-old son wanted to show him how well he was doing at reading. And so his, his son says, dad, can, can, let me show you how I read. And so he's a great son. His son reads it and he says, the old man gave the goat a coat. The goat ate the coat. And he was all proud. He was excited. And Andy was like, that's awesome, son. You did a great job reading it. And then he said, what what, what happened in the story? He's like, I don't know. He's like, well, well, what did the old man give him? The the goat. He's like, I I don't know. Like he gave him a coat. Like, oh, that's funny. Why does a goat need a coat? Well, what what did the goat do with the coat? I don't know. He ate the coat. <laughs> That's silly. Why do you eat the goat? Why do you eat the coat? 
And so what happened? Andy Stanley said this. He said, me and my son had different goals for him reading. He wanted to make sure, the son wanted to make sure he got the words right. The old man gave a coat to the goat. He wanted to make sure he said the word properly. Andy, as his dad, wanted him to comprehend it. Many of us may read God's word because we want to say we've done it right. We, we read today. And so we read our chapter. We read our chapter from the old, our chapter from the new in our psalm. Or, or we read the verse of the day. I mean, whatever it is. And we say, oh, I read. It's like, what? It says, oh, this says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that the Lord makes wonderful works. I know this full well from Psalm 139. That where can I flee from your presence? Where can I hide? Because even in the darkness, you are with me. Darkness is as light to you. What does that mean? Some of us say, I don't know. Well, it means that God created you and formed you and loved you. Oh, that's nice. What does it mean that he makes wonderful works? I don't know. It means that God makes wonderful works. And you, who were just created by him, you are one of them. Oh, that is nice. Are we spending our time reading just to get the words right? Or to say we've done it? Or are we reading to comprehend what God's word is saying? It is better for some of us to maybe just take one verse and read it and pour over it and pray and wrestle with it and ask God to reveal it because it would be better for us to fully comprehend one verse rather than try to read all of it with a heart that does not seek to comprehend. And so read God's word. My challenge for you last week, if you were here with us, I challenge us to memorize Joshua 1.9 in order to take courage if you're with us on Sunday. If you weren't with us on Sunday and that doesn't sound familiar to you, um, it's because we ended up doing two completely different messages last week. Um, and so you could go on the website and watch both because I'm sure that's what you want to do. Um, but there's two separate messages because God had two different things he wanted to say to us last week and they're both uh, available. But I talked about on the Sunday night message Take courage, this idea of memorize Joshua 1.9. This week, my, my challenge, my, my application is spend 10 minutes in God's word every day. But make it a 10 minutes that you're comprehending. Some of you will read more. That's awesome. I'm not saying stop at 10 minutes. But for those of us, who many of us might be thinking, well, I don't really spend 10 minutes. I kind of, you know, I open up my Bible app and I see a word that's great. I want, you know, I do that. Spend 10 minutes trying to, truly comprehend God's word because we just want to get the words right. God as our father wants us to truly comprehend it. The first part of verse 16 also says, in addition to reading God's word, the sword of the spirit talks about how to repent. Make a U-turn. If you've made small compromises that have led you down a path that you're far away from where you want to be and you recognize that the word repent just again means a complete literal changing of the mind and a U-turn of a direction. So if you're far from God where you know you don't want to be, turn around, repent, and then start taking those small steps back to our big God. Verse 17 talks about how whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. Not only do we read the word, not only do we repent, but also we run this race in your notes. Run the race. 
that this idea of being victorious is someone who is an overcomer, someone who receives victory. And we run the race by fixing our eyes on the prize, by knowing that we have not already obtained this, but we strain for what God is calling for in Christ Jesus, as Philippians 3, 12 through 14 talk about, that we strain for it and we long for it. We want to win the race. We want to run this race we don't do it flippantly. You don't just show up to a race without any training and assume that you're going to make it. But every day we make small, not compromises, but small choices to follow God, to pursue him, to read his word, to be in community, to come and worship, to be discipled, to disciple others, to worship him, to run the race. And then lastly, this idea of receiving the prize. The second part of verse 17 says, I will give him some of the the one who's victorious hidden manna. And I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The hidden manna refers to manna. Again, remember, if you don't know what a word is, go back to what it means in the Bible. Manna was the, the bread that was come or like the wafers that were provided every single day while the Israelites were in the wilderness, except on the Sabbath where they would receive the double portion on the day before but it was God's provision of his daily bread. And it reminds us in Deuteronomy when um, we read that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So we're seeing bread referring to the word of God. We're seeing sword referring to the word of God and teaching. And we're seeing this idea that garbage in, garbage out, what we let in determines what we live out. And so the hidden manna is, is the idea that it's, complete contrast to the bread of the sacrifice of the meals that cause people to stumble. It's what we do in secret. It's the time that we spend in God. It's hidden to others, but it's how God gives us daily bread to be able to face and experience what we need to face and experience. And then the white stone in verse 17, there are two different ideas of how, what it means. One is the idea that there is uh, someone when you win a race, you would receive a white stone with your name on it as an invitation to the victor's banquet. So he's saying, if you follow this, if you're victorious by running this race, you will receive the prize of an invitation into my banquet. As the kingdom of God is referred to as a banquet, as Jesus talks about it often, so you'll be invited because you ran the race, you repented, you came back, not through small compromises and false teaching, but through small steps towards God and his true teaching. And then the second idea for the hidden manna is this this idea that it could also mean when there was a trial, if if a jury or someone thought that that person was guilty, they would turn into black stone. But if they thought they were innocent, they would turn into white stone as a sign of acquittal. So the white stone can be an admission into the victor's banquet, and it could also be an acquittal from that which we are guilty of our sins and the way we fall short. That when we follow God, we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We repent of our own ways. We not have garbage in, garbage out, but godly in. His word, his people, worship, time with him. And then we have godly out through the process that when we are pursuing him wholeheartedly, even our stumbles, he will be able to meet us in and we'll be able to turn back to him. And when we do that, we'll be able to receive the invitation to the banquet of the Most High King as victors and receive acquittal for our sin. 
Father, we thank you for who you are, Lord, and I pray that you would speak, that you have been speaking to us, and may, Lord, we receive what you have for us. As we know, some of these sections can be hard to talk about. Some of these things can be difficult, but Lord, may we not strive after false teaching. May we have the ability to tell what is true and what is not. May we recognize when we are making small compromises and stop and repent and you turn and come back to you. May we recognize that the things we watch, the things we listen to, the voices that we give credence to, that the people who speak into our lives, Lord, so many of those can impact us. And so what we let in determines what we live out. And so God, if there's garbage that is coming into our lives, God, we repent of it and we ask for your forgiveness and we ask that we'd be able to remove it through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can have godly in and godly out instead. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for giving us admittance into the victor's banquet because of your victory on the cross, the life, death, and resurrection that gives us eternal life. And thank you for giving us the prize of the acquittal of our guilt because you bore all of our guilt and shame first. And you who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.